Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, special welcome to any of you who are visiting with us the first time or just checking us out. Whether you're here in person or joining online, we are so glad that you're here with us. My name is Julie, and I'm pastors here at Resurrection City Church. And uh, yeah, I just want to give you a special welcome. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in. Father, uh, we thank you for this chance to worship together this morning and to hear from your word. And as we look at the book of Job and talk about what it looks like to suffer uh, and to do that well and to do that with you, I just pray, um, you know, there are many of us who are suffering for various reasons, um, and I just pray that you would meet us this morning, that you would give us comfort, that you would give us hope, and that you would show us truths about yourself even if they challenge our thinking, Lord, we pray that you would um, be with us in our suffering and show us more of you along the way. In your name we pray. Amen. So about 10 months ago, um, I started to have a pain in my heel, and I thought, yeah, it's probably nothing. It's probably just your average heel pain. I'll just on it. Um, do I need to grab a different microphone? I don't know if I'm cutting in and out too much. Um, let me know from up there. Okay, we'll, we'll keep going with it. Um, so anyways, I thought it was just regular heel pain. And then it started to get worse. And there were times when it would start to get really numb and start to kind of like shoot pain up my leg. And so I thought, okay, this seems like something. Maybe I should get it checked out. Anyways, long story short, I guess. I started going to the doctor to get this heel pain checked out. And since then, I've now seen eight different doctors, and I've had just about every test you could possibly imagine done, and yet I still do not necessarily have any answers. I've got some ideas, possible ideas, of what could be causing the pain or what could be the problem, but for the most part, it's all kind of educated guesses. And this has been an incredibly frustrating experience, as you can imagine. But I think the most frustrating part of it is actually not so much dealing with the pain, but it's been not knowing. It's been sitting with the, I don't know, and nobody else seems to know, and I can't quite seem to get an answer for why I'm dealing with the suffering and the pain that I'm dealing with. And as we look at the story of Job today, we're going to see that looking for answers or feeling frustrated by a lack of answers in, when it comes to pain or to suffering is actually a very normal experience. So if you've ever experienced that in any way, you're not alone. And today we're going to look at Job and see how this universal experience is responded to by God. So if you're currently in a season of difficulty, um, or maybe you're processing through a previous time of difficulty that's just been difficult to kind of look back at and go back through, or even just as we, as a community, as a city, as a, as a whole country, grieve and lament the death of Dante Wright and what that... Um, has meant in our country and how that's kind of played out. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, uh, I hope you know that we're going to look at how it's understandable. It's understandable to want answers. It's understandable to grieve. And we're going to look today at Job as an example of how to do that in different ways. So we're going to do a quick recap in case you haven't been with us. We've been in the book of Job. This will be our third week. And so if you haven't read it before or if you're new, what happens in the story is that in the very first scene, this guy called the Satan, or the adversary, shows up and he challenges God. He says, 
you know, your people, they are only interested in you. They only love you because you give them blessing. They only, like, respond to you and worship you because you've given them all these good things. So, of course, they're going to worship you. And so he tests God and basically says, what would happen if we took all those things away from someone? In Satan's guess is the Satan's guess, however you want to talk about him, he says, you know, I bet they would turn around and curse you. I bet they would stop worshiping you. They wouldn't continue to follow you. They would turn around and curse your name. And so this test begins, and Job, the, the character in this, he loses everything. He loses his family, his house, his wealth, his health, and yet he doesn't curse God. So far in the story, we have not seen him turn and curse God. So he's proving the Satan wrong. And then last week, Joel talked about how Job's friends show up and are trying to comfort him and trying to encourage him. And they end up doing some things right, but mostly they end up doing uh, a lot of things that are not helpful to him. And so we've heard from the Satan, we've heard from Job's friends, and now we're finally going to get to hear from Job himself. We're going to get to hear how he feels about what he has been through, what he's thinking, and how he's responding. And I'm not going to read all of what Job says this morning because the guy has a lot to say, and I don't want to be reading uh, entire chapters of scripture for you up here. But the big point is that Job wants answers. He wants to find out why all of this happened to him. And he is looking for that so much that he's ready to challenge God and say, all right, God, here's where I'm at. You better show up and you better give me some answers and responses about what's going on here. So we're going to look at that. And in Job's response, there is one thing that he does right, that he like nails it. We're going to say, yes, that is something you should do if you are in the same experience as Job. And then there are two things that we could say have room for improvement, right? That's the, the nice way of saying things that, that he doesn't quite get right. And so we're going to talk about those three different things and how we can learn from his response and how we respond to suffering. So let's start with the first thing. Let's start with what he gets right. One of the best things that Job does is that Job goes to God in an attempt to make sense of his suffering. In the passage in Job 30, he says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. So if you think that this sounds like maybe a little too intense of something to say to God, uh, or if you're wondering how this is the positive example of something that Job does in the story, I just want you to look back at the very first line. He says, I cry out to you, God. Job could go a lot of places with his suffering. There's been a lot of things that have gone wrong in Job's life. He's lost everything. But he turns towards God and says, I cry out to you. So if you remember the beginning of the story, the whole point of this was to show that if things were taken away from Job, he would turn away from God and curse him. But it, he doesn't. He turns toward him in the midst of his suffering. Don't get me wrong, Job isn't happy about this, right? You can read the, what he says there, and you can tell he's still got some pretty big questions. He is not um, super pleased with God, maybe, in this moment. 
he seemed, but he still seems to hold on to the idea that even though this is difficult, God is in control and he's all-powerful. It's not necessarily a, a super positive portrayal of God. It shows him, you know, he says that God has snatched him up and tossed him into the storm. But even in that, you can hear that for Job, God is still the driving force of what's happening. God is still in control. He is still all-powerful. So whether that's right or wrong way to think about it, and we'll talk more about that, Job is right in turning toward God and not giving up on who God is. And to be honest, this is something we don't see a ton anymore. How many of you know somebody or maybe have thought this for yourself who have said, I can't follow a God who would let these things happen? Maybe some kind of tragedy happened in their life, or maybe they're just looking at the tragedies of the world and saying, why would you want to follow a God who can allow these horrible things to happen in our world? So it might sound very familiar to us, that line of thinking, but it's actually a relatively new way of thinking, and it's a very Western way of thinking. Paul Brand, an orthopedic surgeon, he spent the first part of his medical career in India, and then the last part of his career in the US. And in his book, he says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. So why is that true? Why is that true of all of us living here in the US that we can be so ill-equipped to handle pain? And I think there's a lot of reasons, but honestly, I think one of them comes down to our own arrogance. We think that we know a lot, right? We think, oh, well, I, get, I see the problem, and I'm really, like, I'm really smart, or the world is really smart, people are really smart, so we'll just figure out what the problem is, we'll come up with a solution, and we'll fix it. And then that'll be it. We don't have to worry about this. We can take care of the pain and suffering in our own life. And then when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't know how to fix it, or we tried fixing it and it doesn't work, then we start to say, well, God, how could you let this happen? How could you be the one to do this? Because obviously, if there's no reason that I can understand why this suffering has happened, then there's no good reason for it, right? You hear the, the pride in that, in thinking that if we can't understand it, then obviously it must be wrong. And in truth, there's a lot of things that I don't understand, and yet I still believe work, right? I do not understand most science, and yet I still believe that gravity is a thing and these things still work, right? I don't understand most technology, and yet somehow I'm standing here and the people watching at home online are watching in their living rooms and can still see me, right? Like that, I don't understand how it works, but I still believe that it does. So, uh, there's a pastor, Tim Keller, who uh, wrote an article in The Atlantic recently that I thought was really applicable to this. So he's facing currently his second round of cancer treatment. And so he wrote this article called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. He says, if there is a God great enough to merit your anger over the suffering you witness or endure, then there is a God great enough to have reasons for allowing it that you can't detect. It is not logical to believe in an infinite God and still be convinced that you can tally the sums of good and evil as he does, or to grow angry when he doesn't always see things your way. People say that their suffering is what makes faith in God impossible, 
but in fact, it's their overconfidence in themselves and their abilities that sets them up for anger, fear, and confusion. Right? So if we believe that there's a God who is so big, so powerful, that he created the world, and that he can do all of these things, but yet then we believe that we are great enough to know the sum of all good and evil and to know exactly why everything should happen. It doesn't make logical sense. But there's more than just logic behind it, right? There's things that we believe, things that we struggle with. So Keller goes on, he says, when I got my cancer diagnosis, I had to look not only at my professed beliefs, but also at my actual understanding of God. Had it been shaped by my culture? Had I been slipping unconsciously into the supposition that God lived for me rather than I for him, that life should go well for me, that I knew better than God does how things should go? The answer was yes, to some degree. I found that to embrace God's greatness, to say, thy will be done, was painful at first, and then perhaps counterintuitively, profoundly liberating. To assume that God is as small and finite as we are may feel freeing, but it offers no remedy for anger. Because when we say, God can't be real if he allows the suffering, we're placing ourselves in the, in the, above God, in a sense, right? We're saying that we know exactly how things should go. And as Keller says, that might feel freeing in the moment. It might feel for a second like, yeah, I'm in control. I understand what's happening to me. But in the long run, it leaves you feeling worse. Because what are you going to do with the fact that you still have no answers? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go with all the frustration you feel, the anger, the hurt, the grief when things in the world go poorly or when things in your own life don't go the way that you want them to? Just turning away from God may make you feel like you have an answer for that in the moment, but it's not going to help you in the long run. It's actually going to make it harder to understand what's happening, which is why the one thing that Job really nails, he really gets right in this uh, experience, is that he turns toward God instead of away from him. Job shows us that no matter where we're at, we can always go to God with our anger and our questions. If you hear anything from this message today, this would be the point I want you to take away. No matter how you feel, no matter what kind of headspace you're in, you can go to God. It's better for you to go to him with your anger than to go anywhere else. And if you're truly open to God, he may correct some of your thinking or may change things for you um, in a way of, of understanding things differently. But going to him is still going to be the best thing no matter where you're at. And as I continue on, like I said, we're going to look at some of the things that Job doesn't quite get right. And if you find yourself identifying with those things and being like, oh, shoot, I totally do that, right? Oh, I'm really messed up in doing that. I want you to remember that God still wants you to go to him. Even if you do it incorrectly, even if you do it poorly, he would rather have you go to him than go anywhere else. So that's our first uh, lesson that we learned from Job today. And as we keep going, we're going to look at some of the things that Job maybe learns um, kind of the hard way. So as I was kind of reading for Job and getting prepared for it, one of the commentaries I read asked the question, what theological price are we willing to pay in order to achieve coherence in our lives? So he's looking at this fact that Job is looking for answers, right? He wants to understand his suffering. He wants to know why he's in the place he's in. 
And that desire for answers, that desire to make sense of our experience is so big for him that he's willing to kind of view God differently to make sense of it. He'd rather make sense of his suffering than he would um, keep a a correct view of God or an accurate view of him. And there's two things that Job does that he kind of trades in a different view of God in order to make sense of his suffering. And the first one is he believes that God can be manipulated into giving him answers. So in Job 31, he says, uh, I, If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep. If I have put my trust in gold, uh, or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained, if I had regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I have been unfaithful to God on high." So in these verses, Job is, once again, he did this last week a little bit, but he's doing it again, trying to prove his innocence in his suffering. He's also, so there's something that happened around this time period back in the ancient Near East that people called an oath of innocence. And it was something that's been recorded in literature. People have kind of studied it as something that was a part of the culture that Job lived in. And what it was was basically trying to prove to everybody around him that he was innocent. The culture that Job lived in would have had what people called an honor and shame culture. And that's kind of, I mean, the best way to describe it, honestly, is kind of similar to cancel culture. It's this idea that if you do something bad, then after everybody finds out, they shun you. You become kind of like outcast because there's, you would be bringing shame on anyone you're associated with, right? Kind of sounds like cancel culture when someone screws up. We're like, nope, no longer associated with you. You are shunned. And so Job not only lost all of his uh, family and his health and his, all of his property, but he also lost all of his social capital because people looked at him and said, wow, if all of that is happening to you, you must have done something really wrong, and therefore we want nothing to do with you anymore. And Job was really frustrated by this for many reasons. And so he's saying, okay, I'm going to prove to everybody around me that I did not do anything wrong here, that I am innocent. So he gets up and he starts saying all of these things, right? All these great things I've done. I've, you know, I've fed the, the hungry. I've cared for the fatherless. I've done all these things. And he even admits, if I hadn't done certain things, if I had put my hope in wealth or put my hope in all these other things, that that would be a sin. And God could strike me down if that was the case. But I haven't done any of those things. So he stands in front of everybody saying, okay, God, if I'm lying, if all these things that I'm saying are not true about myself, then strike me down. Take me right now, show everybody that I am in the wrong. And if he doesn't, if God doesn't show up and do anything, then Job will be vindicated. People will see, the eyes of the people will be open to see that Job was actually innocent all along. And so Job is really banking on the fact that God's not going to show up because he's like, I know I'm innocent, so God's not going to strike me down. I'm just going to show to everybody else that I'm actually in the right here. 
we'll find out next week that God actually does show up. Um, and God has a lot to say in response to Job, but we will, we'll save that one for next week. But today I want to focus on the idea that Job believes he knows exactly how God works. With his oath of innocence, he's trying to manipulate God into giving him the answers that he wants. He's saying, kind of like baiting God a little bit and saying, look, I know exactly how you work and you're not operating the way you're supposed to, so I'm going to get involved and I'm going to make you come down here. I'm going to make you give me some answers. And I think we make the same error when we try to apply a lot of how or why to our own suffering. If you've ever heard someone say like, oh, you know, the reason to maybe a single person who's struggling with being single and they say, oh, the reason you're still single is you just have to like learn how to be content with yourself and with God first. And once you do, then God will, will bring someone into your life. Who's heard that before or had someone say that? Right? It's this way that's, that's saying, oh, we're kind of manipulating God, right? If you can just figure it out, figure out your life enough, then God will come and bless you with this thing that you're looking for. Sounds almost like a video game. You have to like level up to the next thing in order to get this blessing from God. And ultimately, that's manipulative to God, right? It's sounding like, hey, if I can do these things right, then you have to give me what I want. Or when we do this, we also do this a little bit when we look at things in our lives and try to apply a direct reason to our suffering and say, oh, it must have for sure been because I had to go through that because I had to learn this lesson. And so God made me go through this thing so that I could be where I am now. And while there's truth to the fact that God works through hardship, right? We talked about this on Easter. God brings light out of darkness. There's not always a way for us on this side of heaven to be able to look at and say, I know exactly why this happened, and this is what it was. Because we're not God, and we don't have all the answers. So ultimately, it might be temporarily satisfying to think we understand and to know everything, but in the long run, it's going to be confusing. At least for me, and when I worked through hard seasons of my life and, and kind of made those thoughts of like, oh, I must have gone through that so that this could happen, eventually I got to a point where I thought, if God's all-powerful, couldn't he have done something else to teach me that lesson? Did I have to go through that specific thing? Why did he make me do that so that I could learn? Couldn't there have been another way? And it starts to sort of like, after a while, those reasons that we grab onto and try to hold onto for understanding, they start to change our view of God, right? They change our theological beliefs, and they make us believe things about God that aren't entirely true. So don't get me wrong, God can use hard things. He works through those things, but we are not the ones who get to decide and describe exactly what God is doing in those different situations. Because the thing we learn from Job is that we won't always get answers, and that's okay. When we look at our suffering and try to make sense of it, we would need all of the information to truly understand it, and we don't have that. Look at the case of Job. He has no idea about what happened with Satan and God and the conversation they had. And here's a little spoiler alert. He never finds out. He never, when God comes and talks to him, he never gives him all of the answers that Job wants. And it's very rare for us that we get all of the information about the suffering that we face in our own lives. And that might sound frustrating. I understand that. But it doesn't mean that we can't still trust God and his wisdom. 
God knows it all. He has all of the wisdom. That's where wisdom comes from. And we can trust that he is doing something. And when you ask yourself, really, I mean, do you really want to worship a God who's only as wise as you are? Because I don't. I, I mean, I know that even on my best day, I need a lot of wisdom. And so if I wanted to worship a God that only was as smart as me to be able to figure out exactly why everything was happening, I feel like that would really cheapen my view of God, and it's not something that I would want to worship. So even though we have a limited understanding, even though we would like to know more, we can trust that God does, he has all of the answers, and we can still turn to him. The second thing that Job does that is um, kind of a, in his quest to understand his suffering, an uh, um, unhelpful view of God that he takes on, is that God needs to be held accountable by him. Right? At the end of Job's oath of innocence, he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I now sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's basically saying, okay, God, I laid everything out. You're not following the principles that you should follow, so what are you going to do about it? Job is so confident that he's right and that God is wrong that he's so bold to challenge God and say, I'm going to hold you accountable. You better answer to me. And again, we look at this and think, yikes, Job, that's a little much. Like, that's a lot to say. But we do similar things all the time. We may not think we believe in the retribution principle, which is something that we've been talking about in this wisdom series, the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But we often have similar lines of thinking when we say things like, I worked hard for this. I deserve that. God has no right to take it away from me. Or this is unfair. We believe that if we're somewhat good people, if we're hardworking, that we deserve for good things to happen. We deserve for the things that we want in life to happen. But what's true in this? Is Job really innocent? Do we really deserve everything that we want? Does God actually operate according to this retribution principle? Do good things always only happen to hardworking good people? What's the honest truth? How should we view the world in this? I think to really understand it, we have to go back to the beginning, as we often do, to the story of how things started. God creates Adam and Eve in the very beginning, and they're innocent, and they're in perfect relationship with him, and everything is great. And then they choose to worship something other than God. They choose to turn away from him, and they mess everything up. And now none of us are innocent. Even when we're good, hardworking people, we're often doing it for the wrong reasons. We're worshiping things other than God himself. So not only are we not innocent, but when we look at how the world is and how broken it is and how much suffering we experience, we're the ones who messed it up. <laughs> but God chooses not to leave it there. God says, yeah, I know that you guys are the one who messed it up, but I'm coming to redeem it. I'm coming to take away all the brokenness, all the pain, all the suffering. So Jesus comes to earth to take on all of our suffering, to conquer sin and death and rise victoriously in his resurrection. And one day he's going to come back and fix it entirely, to make it so that nobody has to experience suffering anymore. So when we're angry, when we're frustrated, we need to remember that even though we don't deserve anything, God gave everything to redeem and bring healing and redemption to the world. So as we think about how we're frustrated and angry in our suffering, 
need to remember that we can direct our anger at the brokenness of the world and not at God. Right? Hate sin. Hate what it's done to us. Hate what it's done to our world. And you can bring that anger to God. You can go to him. Remember, that was our first lesson from Job that we learned. But you don't have to direct it at him. You know how when you're frustrated about something, maybe you were at work and you had a meeting that went poorly or at school and you got a bad grade or whatever it is that was frustrating to you, and you go home and who do you take it out on? You take it out on the people closest to you, right? Whether that's your spouse or your roommate or your kids or whoever it is, when we're mad, we end up taking our anger out at people who didn't actually maybe cause the anger, but just because they're close to us and we trust them, those are the ones that we go to. And I think we do this with God all the time, right? We take our anger and we say, hey, I'm mad about this and I'm going to direct it at you when really God is the one who gave everything to fix this. He's the one who gave everything he had. He sent his only son to live here on earth so that he could understand our suffering, to die on the cross, to take on all the sin and pain and death and to rise again. And so when we take our anger to him, we can remember that we don't need to direct it at him. We can be mad that the world is broken. We can hate sin. We can hate pain and suffering. But we don't need to direct it at God. Because God hates sin and brokenness too. He can empathize. That's why he did something about it. He wanted to fix things so badly that he gave everything for it. So it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to be grieved. God is too. But we need to remember that we don't need to direct it at him, but we can bring it to him. So as we wrap up today, we're going to take communion, um, and that's something that tangibly helps us remember these truths. It's something that helps us remember that God sent his own son to die for us. So that's why the juice or the wine represents blood. Remember, it represents Jesus' death for us, for the world, to bring about redemption. And so when we take communion, it's a way to physically remember that we live in this weird in-between. God has already given everything to fix the brokenness in the world, and yet he's going to come back and fix it all completely uh, soon. So it's a way to remember and to do it together. As Joel talked about earlier this morning, when one part of the body suffers, we all do. And so in taking communion together as a body of Christ, we are remembering collectively that this uh, sacrifice that God made was not just for us personally, but for all of us together. And we can suffer together well and point each other to the truths of Jesus and of the cross and the resurrection. So I'm going to pray for us, and then the worship team is going to come back up, and we're going to head into a time of worship. Father, we thank you that you have given everything in order to redeem the suffering and the brokenness in our world. We know that it is difficult, and we grieve, and we lament, and we praise you that we know that you do too, that the things that are in this world that are broken and are wrong, we know that you see that too. You see us. You are with us in it, and you can empathize with it. So, Lord, we just praise you for the ways that you have begun this redemption process. And we praise you for the people that you have brought us together to be a body of Christ and suffer together as we remember who you are and point each other to you. And pray all these things in your name. Amen.